Sky Watchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Patricia. And I'm Bryony. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in July in this Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way, and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow about 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. If you enjoy a good cuppa, why not treat yourself to a celestial spot of tea? Lying low above the southern horizon is the constellation of Sagittarius, home to a well-known asterism called the teapot. Under good sky conditions, our home galaxy, the Milky Way, appears as steam rising out of the spout of the teapot, with the center of the galaxy lying to the upper right of the tip of the spout. There are some wonderful deep sky objects dotted around the teapot, so if you've got a telescope and a good view of the southern horizon, we have quite a few targets to add to your list. Lying to the east of the teapot's lid, you'll find M22, a globular star cluster, while to the west of the teapot's lid, you'll find M8, the Lagoon Nebula, as well as NGC 6553, another globular star cluster. The open star cluster M6, also known as the Butterfly Cluster, can be found to the west of the teapot spout. If you follow the Milky Way galaxy as it rises up from the teapot spout, you'll find M16, the famous Eagle Nebula. With so many objects to see, use the dark skies around New Moon on the 10th to explore the tea time treats around the teapot. During the month, there will be a number of passes of the International Space Station. Also known as the ISS, it is the largest artificial satellite in orbit around the Earth and takes about a couple of minutes to move across the sky, appearing as a bright point of light. Orbiting at an average altitude of 400 kilometers above the surface of the Earth, the ISS travels at a whopping 17,500 miles per hour, or for those of you like me who only understand kilometers, 28,000 kilometers per hour. That means it takes around 90 minutes to complete one orbit of the Earth. And what this means is that on the ISS, you get to see the sun rise and set over the Earth 16 times every single day. Due to its giant reflective solar panels, the ISS is easy to see as it's reflecting light from the sun. For detailed information about visible passes at your location, including start and end times, visit NASA's Spot the Station website. For those keen on doing some lunar observations, we recommend you wait until the 17th when the moon reaches its first quarter phase, as this provides the perfect opportunity to spot craters. Grab a pair of binoculars or a telescope and direct your gaze at the Terminator, the dividing line between day and night on the moon. It's along this line that you'll see shadows cast by mountains onto the lunar surface, and you'll also spot the shadows cast by crater walls. See if you can spot Plato Crater, which lies on the northern edge of Mare Imbrium, the Sea of Rains. The crater has a diameter of over 90 kilometers and is one of the easiest to recognize because of its dark floor. 
lying close to Plato are the Lunar Alps, a mountain range that was formed by the same impact event that created Mare Imbrium. This month, the gas giants Jupiter and Saturn make a welcome return to the evening sky, with both planets visible towards the southeast after sunset. On the evening of the 24th, the two planets will be joined by the full moon, forming a cosmic triangle in the sky. These planets are great targets for a pair of binoculars or a telescope. You might even be able to make out some of their moons. See if you can spot the four largest moons of Jupiter, known collectively as the Galilean moons, in honour of Galileo Galilei, who discovered them in 1608. When turning your attention to Saturn, look not just for the rings, but also for Titan, Saturn's largest moon. Fun fact, it is the only moon in the entire solar system that has an atmosphere and the only other solar system body apart from Earth that has liquid on its surface that we know of. But don't expect to find liquid water on Titan. The temperature is far too cold there for water to exist in a liquid state. What you instead find are lakes of liquid hydrocarbons. Now, that would definitely make for an interesting cup of tea. Towards the end of the month, we are treated to the annual Delta Accurate meteor shower, which will reach its peak on the night of the 28th and early morning of the 29th. This meteor shower favours the southern hemisphere, but it is visible from mid-northern latitudes. This meteor shower is named for its radiant, which in this case is near to the star Delta Aquarii in the constellation of Aquarius. The comet responsible for the shower, Comet 96P Macholes, has a very short period of only 5.29 years and is noted for its lack of carbon. One explanation for this is that the comet formed outside our solar system and wandered here by mistake, getting trapped by the sun's gravity, though it's also entirely possible that the comet simply formed in a very cold part of our solar system where carbon gets trapped into molecules. This particular shower isn't a very strong one, having a meteor count of only around 20 meteors per hour. Unfortunately, the light from a waning gibbous moon will wash out a fair number of the meteors, but if you are up for a challenge, wait until the early hours of the 29th when Aquarius is higher up in the sky, face south, and scan the skies using just your eyes. Remember to be patient and wrap up warm, because the nights can get chilly even in summer. Stars don't live forever. They have a limited amount of fuel available for them to burn. When a star runs out of fuel, the fate of that star depends on its mass. When a sun-like star reaches the end of its life, it sheds its outer layers of material and exposes the remnant of its core, a hot white dwarf star. Ultraviolet radiation emitted by the white dwarf causes the shed material to glow, producing a spectacular object called a planetary nebula. For those living in the Southern Hemisphere, there are many planetary nebulae for you to choose from, but there are two in particular that are great targets for the winter months. The first is NGC 3918, also known as the Blue Planetary Nebula, located about 4,900 light years away from us on Earth. You can spot it lying to the west of the Southern Cross. For a spooky treat, have a look also at NGC 3242 also known as the ghost of Jupiter. This planetary nebula, which lies only around 1,500 light years from the Earth, 
received its nickname because it bears a close resemblance to what Jupiter looks like through a small telescope. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rng.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. Now, the cosmic news part of our podcast is where Patricia and I go head to head, bringing our favorite astronomical news stories from the past month and sort of breaking them down a little bit, going into detail about what they actually maybe mean on a wider scale, as well as maybe looking at the actual papers uh, themselves and seeing what the data is actually saying rather than just what the catchy headlines are. Because as we have seen at times, Catchy headlines, uh, well, they're not always all there is to the story. Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, they can lure you in. And exactly. Then they, you know, and then they sort of fall apart when you when you go beyond the catchy, the catchy headline. That, that does happen. It is a shame. It is a shame. But, you know, I mean, hey, I think I've said this before and I'll say it again. If a catchy headline still has correct information in it and draws people in, then I can forgive it. That is true. Clickbait is the nature of the internet nowadays. But how did our Twitter poll with our attempt at catchy headlines go, Patricia? So I do have the results at hand, Bryony. So uh, just a reminder, last month, Bryony, you spoke about some data that comes through from the Voyager 1 spacecraft, which is still amazing. Voyager 1 collecting data, what, 40, almost 50 years old now? That in itself is amazing. So you spoke about a sort of interstellar hum in space that had been detected by Voyager 1. And I spoke about Perseverance and MOXIE. So the ability to, or this tester where Perseverance took some of the Martian atmosphere and was able to create some oxygen or make some oxygen from that atmosphere. So Twitter has spoken, Bryony. And with 56% of the votes, and I will say this is one of the stories where it was, it was very close for some, a period of time. And then one story went into the lead and it stayed there. So as I say, with 56% of the votes, the winning story from last month is Voyager 1. So well done, Bryony. Well done. Very, very good story about the data that comes through and I think it resonated with people oh resonated very clever there that Uh (laughs) (laughs) oh I mean mean, that's I mean look that's pretty much 50 50 though which I think I think that's in some ways is the best outcome because it means that well hopefully it means that people are struggling to choose between two great stories not going they both suck uh, I mean, just just a, just a note to our listeners, if they both suck, please do tell us. Maybe maybe a bit, little bit nicer than that. Uh, we we are sensitive people. Maybe be constructive. a little bit... I would say constructive feedback, I think, is what we'd probably want. But yes, that's true. Obviously, if there's a if there's if you didn't like a story, you didn't like a story and you please please tell us. <laughs> yeah, and we'll we'll keep that in mind in the future. Uh, but let's hear uh this month's stories there's been there's been a decent amount coming out this month actually i mean there's been lots of news to do with china and their new space station yeah Uh, 
that's been coming out a lot. I've been following that quite quite eagerly. Lots of things about uh, human space travel in that. So I, I wonder, Patricia, what's what have you brought? You you go first. What have we got today? So my story this month is all about some really nice photographs that came through of now, an object. Now I'm just disappointed that we're an audio podcast. I mean, maybe I know, I know. That's the thing is that I'm going to be talking about these photographs, but you know, the power of the internet means that anyone be, will be able to access it. That is the benefit of at least having the internet is that you can have a look at these. But yes, yeah, so there are some really exciting photographs that came through. I think it must have been the beginning of June, roughly is when they came through. And they, there's still a couple more on their way. These photographs were obtained by NASA's Juno spacecraft, which if you're familiar with all the, the missions that are currently active, you'll know Juno is currently in orbit at Jupiter. So Juno's mission is all about studying Jupiter. But the spacecraft has imaged some of the Galilean moons of Jupiter, albeit from a distance. So if you look at how Juno orbits Jupiter, you'll see that its orbit keeps it very close to the planet. But sometimes that orbit actually changes to a bit that Juno heads a little bit further away from Jupiter. And in this particular case, it ended up performing a flyby of one of the Galilean moons in oh, this. Can I guess which one? Oh, you can. You can. Okay. Because okay. Um, I, I haven't actually seen this story at all. I was vaguely aware of it, but I haven't looked at it. Okay, which one? Uh, I'm going to guess um, Io? It's not Io. Callisto. Not Callisto. Ganymede? That's hey, it. Okay, look, <laughs> third out of four. Uh, it's not the worst, but it's uh, it's certainly worse than random chance. So let's just continue. So I know some people listening might be like, but Io is the cool one. Well, in, in, no, it's not in that one. sense. It's the hot one, but the cool one because it's got the active volcano. So why are we getting excited about Ganymede? Well, the reason why we're getting excited is because Juno has flown closer to Ganymede than any other spacecraft has in more than two decades. Ooh, that certainly is exciting. So, so this is a big gap in terms of exploring any object uh, for that matter. But let's, let's at this point pause and spare a thought for the ice giants Uranus and Neptune. <laughs> Just never get any love from anyone. So we'll take a moment to think of the distant ice giants of our solar system. Well, that moment is gone because they are so distant that uh, we don't have enough time for them. So let's continue with the, the close. <laughs> oh, don't worry, Uranus and Neptune, we're coming back for you, I promise. But in this particular case, what happened was that Juno ended up passing around a thousand kilometers above the surface of Ganymede. Now, if you have seen any of the images that Juno's captured of Jupiter, the, the extraordinary detail it's been able to capture in the atmosphere of the planet, you can understand now why planetary scientists are itching to see these images that Juno had obtained. Now, at the time of this recording, to my knowledge, 
only two images from the flyby have actually come through or been released. Some more are expected. And I think once these have, you know, being processed and that they, they will be able to, they will be released. But also what scientists will be able to do is construct a color image of Ganymede. So Juno is taken through the relevant filters to be able to create a color image. But even though we only have two images so far, or at least that's what's been released, they are breathtaking to see. Because you can see the surface of Ganymede now in remarkable detail. It's a simple case. If you open the main image up, you can actually zoom in and you can start to see textures on the surface. You, you see the craters, you see the distinct bright and dark terrain of Ganymede. And you can also see these long structural features across the surface of Ganymede, which are possibly linked to tectonic faults. They are astonishing images. I'll make sure I put a link to them in the description of the podcast because they are incredible. They're extraordinary. Yeah, these striations I can see, yeah, they're, they're fascinating. So the, your response, Brian, is exactly what I want people to have that kind of response in seeing it. Now, mission scientists have actually said they're going to take their time looking at these images before drawing any scientific conclusions about what they're seeing in these pictures. But I want to talk a bit more about Ganymede and why we actually care about these images. I mean, what was the point? Why, as I say, are people really excited? So as we said, Ganymede is one of the Galilean moons of Jupiter. It's the largest Galilean moon. In fact, Ganymede is the largest moon in the entire solar system. Also, of all the moons in the solar system, it is the only one with its own magnetic field. Which is pretty exciting. So Ganymede has an internal dynamo that generates like its magnetic field, much like the Earth does. So that's that's already, this is, you know, cool points. You're ticking boxes here. But also, its magnetic field causes a Rory. It actually has auroras on Ganymede. Really? Yeah. That's incredible. Now, do you want to know the cool thing, Bryony? Yeah. Of course. It is due to these auroras that they've observed at Ganymede that scientists figured out that that moon, that Ganymede, has a subsurface ocean of salty water. Really? They've, oh my goodness. So now you might be wondering, huh? How are these two things? So I'm going to do my best to explain this. I'm not a planetary scientist. I'm going to do I'm going to do my best. So, Jupiter, as we know, has this enormous magnetic field. Huge. It's enough to completely rip Io up and down. So enormous magnetic field, and Ganymede sits inside this magnetic field as well. So what happens is that the locations of the aurora on Ganymede depend on its own magnetic field. Yeah, same but, as uh, same as here. Yeah, but as Jupiter spins on its axis, its magnetic field actually tugs on the auroras that are produced on Ganymede, and based on physical models there was a prediction that these uh, auroras should wobble around the poles on Ganymede by about six degrees. It was an angle that was calculated. So as Jupiter is spinning, they should see this wobble and it should be measurable. That's the key, should be measurable. So when scientists used the Hubble Space Telescope to study Ganymede, those aurorae were, were not rocking around as much as they expected to. 
Mm. And this could only be explained by a counterbalancing electrically conductive ocean between the moon's surface because if you have moving electrons what do we get Bryony? we get a magnetic field so now again this is where it gets really interesting when the galileo spacecraft was studying jupiter and that was the main mission before Juno's, and that was going back some time. So in 2002, the Galileo spacecraft had made some observations which suggested that Ganymede had a subsurface ocean. But the strongest evidence to date are these Hubble Space Telescope observations that were done back in 2015. And so this, again, great evidence of a subsurface ocean. And as an interesting side note to something I think you'll find interesting, Bryony, this method that they've used with the Hubble Space Telescope and Ganymede has actually been proposed as a potential way of determining if an exoplanet has oceans. So that is super exciting that we get to test it out a bit in our, in our own backyard, if you will. Exactly. And if we, so going back to the Juno observations, now, I, I, as I mentioned, mission scientists are going to be pouring over these images because of the detail that Juno has been able to capture. And previous spacecraft images have shown that Ganymede has this really complex geological history and, and that its surface is a mixture of two types of terrain. So about 40% of the surface of Ganymede is covered by highly cratered dark regions, while 60% is covered by a light grooved terrain, which forms those intricate patterns that we see across Ganymede. And you can see the, the grooved pattern in the Juno images. And as I said, it, it's it's beautiful. So if you haven't had a look at those images, please, please, please do. All in all, Ganymede is, I think, sometimes is a forgotten about moon in the sense that obviously there's a lot of focus on Europa and Enceladus and, and moons like that. But I think the, the Juno flyby has been expected to provide some insights about the composition of Ganymede, its magnetosphere, as well as its ice shell. But what we really need, Bryony, is a dedicated mission to study the moons of Jupiter. And guess what? <gasps> We're getting We've got that. not one, but two missions that are going to be sent out to explore the Galilean moons. So I kind of feel a little bit like, uh, like Oprah now. <laughs> a mission for you, a mission for you, and still nothing for Uranus and Neptune. I'm sorry. I'm going to take a moment for the, the forgotten nice giants again. But the, the missions that we've got going out uh, to study the moons, the first one is JUICE, which stands for the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. It's a European Space Agency mission, which I think is currently scheduled to launch next year and will arrive at Jupiter in 2029. So JUICE will spend at least three years studying Jupiter along with Ganymede, Callisto and Europa. The other mission that's going to be heading out there is NASA's Europa Clipper. And this mission is dedicated to study Europa to determine whether Europa could harbor conditions suitable for life. Because, as I mentioned, in the search for you know oceans, Europa and Enceladus are kind of top of the list. And Europa is strongly suspected to have a subsurface ocean of water. But don't worry, Europa Clipper will also pass by Ganymede and Callisto. 
although the mission will be focused on Europa, there will be some little flybys of those two as well. And the Europa Clipper mission, I think, currently scheduled to launch in 2024, arriving at Jupiter in 2030. So lots to look forward to in the coming years if you're a fan of the Galilean moons and maybe the search for life too, because we don't know. We don't know, Bryony, do we? Could be an no. interesting thing. Um, and if you're feeling if you're feeling a bit bad for Io, please do. Um, <laughs> because one a, a, pr- a proposed mission, dedicated mission to Io called Ivo, didn't receive any funding or a go-ahead. Uh, so that was all the recent news that was announced. Um, when I think NASA mentioned the the two missions going to Venus. And so there was a lot of sad people going, but what about Uranus and Neptune? What about Io? So hopefully those kinds of missions will get funding in the future. But definitely lots of exciting things. But yes, please do go and have a look at these images of Ganymede. And hopefully by the time the podcast is released, we might even have the full color image of Ganymede and maybe some more insights from mission scientists. But yes, very exciting. And something I thought that I would talk about because I think it sort of slid under the radar it kind of popped up and then it just disappeared a bit but very very interesting yeah i think it's it's one of those things that you know because they they release these two images which are spectacular and i think i hope that they're planning to sort of release more and just every time get people interested again they can go and look back at the previous ones and uh, look forward to the new yeah one. and that's actually a good point you so that's something again i encourage people to do if you just go to for example nasa's photo journal website you'd be able to look at the galileo space probes images of ganymede and those were the best so to be honest if you've been in a museum in a planetarium and you've seen a picture of Ganymede, it's probably the Galileo image that you've been looking at. Now we got a really, really nice high resolution picture from, from Juno. So have a look at those. It gives you a little appreciation for how much technology has progressed. Yeah, and how amazing it is that really we can do this, quite frankly. And also set yourself a challenge. Spot the difference. Can you see any changes? Because that is something that the scientists will be looking at is what has changed has anything changed in 20 years so maybe you can beat the scientists to the post have a look at those pictures let us know do you spot new cratering are there new cracks in the surface yeah who knows be be your own detective and also before we finish this story i do want to just have a quick little shout out to the the naming of juno uh, because (laughs) jupiter is the king of the gods in roman mythology and juno is his wife so Juno, the spacecraft, she's just gone to check up on her husband, just just checking yeah. to see what he's up to. And I mean, if you know anything about Roman mythology, you know that it's definitely worth checking up on. Oh, yeah. Houses. And for any Lego aficionados out there, you'll, there are Lego figurines of Galileo, Jupiter and Juno on board the Juno spacecraft. That's amazing. I love and it. I, and I will stop there because as Bryony knows, I get... If you thought I was passionate about space exploration, wait until I start talking about a certain building block. So I, I think we might need to stop there, Bryony. Otherwise, I might hijack the, the rest of this podcast. But I am dying to hear your story for this one. So what have you chosen for us? Well, this month, you've stayed inside the solar system and I have ventured a little bit further away from it, between 500 and 700 light years away, to be exact. Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. I'm talking about the star Betelgeuse. (gasps) 
Mm. So Betelgeuse is, it's one of those stars that is, it's beloved by both amateur and research astronomers alike, because for one thing, it is really nice to look at just in the sky, even with the naked eye, you can spot it very easily. It's red, it's bright, it's in Orion, which is a great constellation. So it's a, it's a really great star, but research astronomers also really love it because it is so large and bright and close to us. When we look at it through, for example, the creatively named Very Large Telescope, we can actually see it as a full disc. It's not just a point of light. We actually can see the star. The reason for that is because it is relatively close to us, astronomically speaking, and it, it is massive. Uh, put it this way, if it was where the sun is, the star itself would extend out to the orbit of Mars, at least. Wow. To the orbit of Jupiter. That's a, that's a, that's a big star. And uh, it's also a, a star that is very much likely to go boom. <laughs> well, that's exactly it. That's why it's Soon-ish. so big-ish. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's actually what I, what I want to talk about today. Oh. Um, so Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse or any number of other pronunciations, uh, forgive me when I inevitably switch between Betel and Betel. It is a red supergiant star, which means it is a star larger than our sun that is reaching the end of its life. And so what happens to stars is they sort of puff up in the outer bit and the inner bit contracts um, and it goes from fusing hydrogen to fusing helium and then more other higher elements and on and on and on. But what's happening throughout that is not this sort of linear process where you know the outside puffs up a bit and the inside contracts. And then it you know, kind of keeps contracting this sort of linear way. It's it, it's a, a bit more of sort of like a sighing process is the way I like to describe it, where the star will expand and contract in the core and the, the outer layers will be kind of blown off a little bit more and more, maybe kind of sigh in and out. But what all this is to say is that we expect for Betelgeuse to completely end its life in the near-ish future. Now for a red supergiant, that means going supernova, which is like the biggest implosion slash explosion that you can get. And it will be amazing. It will be so bright, you will be able to see it during the day. It's going to be an incredible view and I cannot wait for it. Now- I'm excited. I'm very excited. And I, I, I am, I'm going to admit, I am that kind of person when Orion is up. So like, you know, the winter skies, when I'm outside and I can see it, I'm always keeping an eye on Beetlejuice because I just, part of me wants to be outside to witness this majestic moment of the, all of a sudden just this, you know, star going supernova. But I, but at the same time, I'm like, is it going to happen within my lifetime? I really want to, but astronomically speaking, what are the chances, Bryony? Maybe. Well, well, they're they're, they're astronomical. They're, they're astronomical. Oh, they literally astronomical. Yeah. 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 So the thing is, Betelgeuse, it, it's going to go supernova sometime soon, uh, but that could mean in the next like hundred thousand. 200,000 years, which is, I mean, it's a little bit longer than our lifetimes, Patricia. Um, even so, even if I started eating fruit on a regular basis, it's, you know, just. Yeah. No. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, but green juices will not help you live to 100,000. So, you know, people are eagerly watching Betelgeuse, not just from an amateur perspective, not just with your eyes, but also with these telescopes. Now, something very exciting happened in December 2019. Betelgeuse started to dim. Now, we think that when a red supergiant is about to go supernova, 
it will start to dim. And so while Betelgeuse, it does have this periodic brightening and dimming, when it started to dim in December, it was quite marked. And in fact, it kept dimming so much that into January and February of 2020, it was actually so much dimmer than usual that you could spot a difference. That's how much dimmer. If you looked at pictures taken of the sky from the same location, but like a year apart, you could actually see that Betelgeuse was visibly dimmer. So naturally, I can imagine excitement, perhaps amongst people saying, is, is it time? Is it, is it going to happen? Pretty much. It was like January and then February and then March 2020 here and everything sucked. And Betelgeuse joined forces and just got brighter again, which was disappointing, obviously. But, you know, that's just sort of the way it goes. And we all went, OK, well, great. What caused that? Now, there are a number of potential reasons for why it could happen but the problem is picking which one it could be because the truth is red giant stars are well red super giant stars even are not really that well understood for all we know we think how stellar evolution works we haven't actually been able to observe a star in its last stages of life since I think it was 1604 was when Kepler saw supernova. That's true. You're right. I think people often phrase it as the the Milky Way is overdue a decent supernova, I think is usually the, <laughs> the way I, they tend to describe it. Yeah, I think so as well. We see lots of supernova remnants, but we haven't seen a supernova and we really want to watch one happen because this will it will give us so much data on what happens to stars at the end of their lives and also what's inside stars. We'll be watching a star be completely ripped apart. So it's something we want to see. But what happened? Well, firstly, a few facts about this dimming of Betelgeuse. Now, one thing is its beginning did coincide with where we would expect a dimming to occur. So that's hint number one. Another hint was that it dimmed markedly in the visible spectrum but not so much in the IR spectrum. So infrared, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. So it it did dim, but not uniformly, which, I mean, again, is not necessarily anything to do, not a signal, you know, it's not like we're going to look at red giant stars now and if we observe a dip not in the infrared, then we're going to say, oh, okay, well, it's not going supernova. It's it's not quite that, but these, you know, two, two little hints that are, you might want to keep a, keep in your mind. Now, just last week, actually, some uh, researchers at the Paris Observatory, the, uh, had the lead author of the paper was uh, Montagues, so I'll be referring it to as uh, Montagues paper, came out in Nature just last week, and it sort of walked through the options and said from their observations what they think is the strongest supported one, because they trained the very large telescope onto Betelgeuse as this dimming and then subsequent rebrightening occurred. Uh, So there were kind of four options that they proposed. So number one is, well, maybe it was just a local decrease in the effective temperature because the brightness of a star is related to its temperature. So another one is maybe just some dust kind of was newly formed nearby and that caused this, this dimming. Some other ideas were maybe a transient clump of dust passed by, just happened to pass between us and Betelgeuse. And then finally, maybe uh, it was a fully change, like a change in the angular diameter of Betelgeuse that we, we weren't expecting. Maybe it contracted more. 
Now, number three and four are kind of instantly ruled out. So the idea that it was a transient clump of dust is very, very quickly ruled out because as we were observing it, we did not see a clump move across the star. It didn't appear to move, but it was quite localized in the southern hemisphere. And from measurements, they noticed you know, this idea it was maybe a change in angular diameter. Well, in order for it to have uh, affected the brightness in the way it did, it would have had to change like 30% more than it even did. So it, you know, that's kind of rejected. So these, yeah. these, these two ones that are mainly, is it, was it a local decrease in temperature or was it maybe some newly formed dust? But then the question is, how did this dust form? Do we have any idea what happened? Well, we know that red supergiants are always blowing off this gaseous material, but what could have caused that gaseous material to, in this case, condense into dust? Well, there's a little bit of a hint there, you know, when I was talking about the local decrease in temperature and also the fact that this was a dimming period. And also remember the fact that it seems to be isolated, localized to the Southern Hemisphere. Um, I'll leave a link to the article about the, the paper, which you can see the uh, a little animation showing the dimming and you can see this clump of dust in front of the Southern part of Betelgeuse then sort of dissipates. So what we think happened was basically just so happened that Betelgeuse expelled some gas that was in the same plane that we're looking at it. And that gas expellation coincided with a drop in the local temperature, which meant that that gas condensed down into dust. And now this is where we need to think back to what I said about how it didn't really change in the infrared band. Now yeah. it's quite well known if you're an astronomer that if yeah. you want to look through a dust cloud, what do you use? Infrared. Yeah. Exactly right. And so basically because we saw this drop in the visible spectrum, but not in the infrared spectrum, that lends credence to this idea that it was the dust cloud. Yeah. And because it coincided with this normal dimming, it's thought that it, it basically just, just so happened that it expelled some gas in our direction that then was cooled down to condense into dust that then obscured part of Betelgeuse. Which unfortunately does mean that it it it's it's no closer to going supernova than before. We it's it's just it's just a natural part of its life. But it's kind of amazing though. Now we have definitively observed this. We have definitively observed a supergiant star expelling some dust or expelling some gas and coalescing into dust. So even though I have to wait a little bit longer for Beetlejuice to go boom, it's really interesting or exciting that that mystery of the dimming has potentially been solved because it was very puzzling really to see was. what it was doing and I can I can imagine again probably lots of models as well about potential causes for it but the I the, yeah the fact that with infrared the, the brightness didn't change that much I, I yeah it does you say it does lend support to this idea that dust had some role to play in this dimming that was that was observed yeah, but it's also nice that it was just happened to be along our line of sight because now you start to think about how much of this we're potentially missing as well. Well, that's it. I mean, and something else that is not really particularly well known or understood is exactly how red supergiants uh, and red giants, well, but you know, the larger stars, how they lose mass. It's known that they lose mass, uh, and by 
looking by, by studying Betelgeuse, we, we know that it's losing an amount of mass. It's about, about 1% uh, of the Earth's mass is lost per year. A bit, a bit more than that is lost per year, roughly. And so by looking at this dust clump, uh, and you know, they did a lot of simulations of the size of Betelgeuse and it dimming, all of that, when they look at the convection cells that drive this temperature change, uh, when they look at that and you know, they did all these models and simulations to try to fit it to, to see what, yeah. what fit it the best. This is just more methods of mass loss, but also more ways for stardust to get into the universe. You know, because we see it everywhere. We see it in all like lots of places. Yeah. Uh, and you know, how how does it leave? Well, here is one potential. Well, obviously, with a supernova, stuff gets gets thrown everywhere. But here is showing that maybe stuff can like bleed from the star as it is at yeah. the end of its life. It's not, you know, it's it's not these sort of sporadic like only these sporadic massive bursts. This mass loss uh, occurs, and this uh, material is expelled throughout the star's life. And so that material's of yeah, course really. traveling out into into the universe. Yeah, I mean it's yeah it's it's just it's exciting. I I think that's that's why I really enjoy. We like it. it. Yeah, I, I think that's why I enjoy. It. I know some people, you know, some people the scientific process. It seems a bit strange in some ways the way it's reported often because it's often reported like oh this is a certainty oh my goodness they've disproved this that's why you know every day pretty much you have an article that says red wine's good for you, red wine's bad for you, chocolate's good for you, chocolate's bad for you, uh, because that's not what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> they're saying that there is evidence to suggest that in these specific conditions, this yeah. specific thing, this is an outcome. But the truth is, like we said at the beginning, clickbait gets clicks. Yes, uh, it does. And so, you know, I mean, I, I wish it could be more of a, you know, maybe... <laughs> I think they're like red wine cures ca- cancer or whatever. And those, I, th- I think those are a little bit too clickbaity for me. But, you know, th- things suggesting that some things are good, other things aren't. It's, yeah, it, it's one of those things you, you really do have to keep your wits about you and go, okay, well, does it say that? Is it saying that? But often I think that it's much more interesting to see what they're actually saying. Because... You know, all those clickbait titles, we, we know it's not the case. That's not the way it works. But if you actually read what it is, it's like, oh, that's really interesting. Because if we understand why this is, and that's normally what it's trying to explore, we can actually see, you know, see if we can in the future draw more overarching conclusions. And I know what's going to happen to me. Someone's just going to put an article out that says Beetlejuice will explode now. And I'm going to click on it. And then by then somewhere in the document, they'll say now refers to a time period between now and a million years from now <laughs> we have redefined the word now <laughs> so now Stop. now is <laughs> now now it's expanded uh, but brilliant story thank you so much Bryony, for talking to us it's actually quite nice because i i reported on the dimming of beetlejuice when it's happened so this is a nice a little continuation because i did say at that point or i think uh, when dara was on it she mentioned we will be revisiting beetlejuice in the future and we did so we've hopefully with the mystery solved so there we have it 
two exciting news stories for everyone to vote for this month. So please do keep an eye out on our Twitter account at ROG Astronomers because the poll will go live at the start of the month. So please do vote for your favorite story. Have a listen to our podcast and share it with friends and family. And just to get everyone to look up at the night sky. That's something I'm actively encouraging everyone to do. Although I know just looking out my window now, weather is not promising at this point for some stargazing and might be this way for a while but certainly when the skies clear up which they will do we hope that everyone goes out and enjoys the wonders of the night sky and as i say you never know what you might see so keep an eye out especially if you can if you can if you can just monitor beetlejuice for me yeah yeah if someone will keep an eye on it for me yeah yeah i'm 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 not putting away the popcorn when looking at, at beetlejuice just just yet just yet because as i say you never know you never know that you might be out one night and it just all of a sudden you happen to look up and it just goes boom i know it's more dramatic than going boom but i for me that that's i think that's that's as best as we can yeah i think that does bring us to the end for this month i have a sneaky suspicion july might bring some more stories some more interesting stories bits that we've yet to explore maybe maybe briny i'll be brave and venture beyond the solar system because you know i do do love staying close to home you do you do well we'll just have to wait and see have to wait and see but in the meantime hope everyone stays safe uh, and hopefully yet a few clear skies so you can spend a little bit of time looking up (laughs) 